Well, ESG investing is taking the planet by storm and investors everywhere are keen on it. Carbon markets are not traditionally thought of, if at all, as a place where investors might park their money. Enter Guy Dickinson, who has thought of an ingenious way to take investing in carbon markets to a level that will not only produce profit but help sustain the planet. It's never been done before, but that hasn't stopped Guy from making a brave move first into the Australian carbon markets and, if all goes well, in the UK and across the world. And today, to tell us all how it works. He's on Dave and Darm Demystify. From the studios of NMD Plus in the UK and US comes the Dave and Darm Demystify show. Dave. Darm. Dave and Darm Demystify Show, making sense of the world of fintech and digital finance. Sit back and listen as the two Ds take a subject and chat it through to make it clearer and easier to understand. And now, here are your hosts, Dave Wallace and Darm Mystery. Demystify. So welcome to today's episode. And today our guest is Guy Dickinson, who is the founder of Beta Carbon, a business based out of Sydney, Australia. So Guy, do you want to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about Beta Carbon? Sure. Thanks for having me on the show to start with. So who's Guy Dickinson? It's a good question. I ask myself as I get older and it's changed a lot, actually. You know, if you ask who the Guy Dickinson of 10 years ago was, I was deep in trading fixed income assets, foreign exchange, running balance sheets for the bank. Most recently, I've been the treasurer at HSBC for Australia and New Zealand. I've run trading businesses in Hong Kong, Singapore, Thailand, spent the majority of my time in various management roles at HSBC since about 2003. You could have called me a very stable banker. And, you know, in my time that I'd spent most recently in the last year, COVID happened to all of us. And I wouldn't say that it was squarely because of that, but it was definitely a little bit because of that. I ended up spending a lot of time on a small property I've got, and that allowed me more time to think. And when I got away from the hullabaloo of a dealing room, I started thinking through mechanisms to heal, heal the planet, which wasn't my baseline before that. So something changed because of that. So let's call it time to reflect. And I think that time to reflect allowed me time to think. And having time to think allows you to let go of biases that you'd usually hold. So it moved from a very institutional mindset to more of a what can I do mindset? Make a difference today. You know, I'm not 25, I'm 47. You look 25, I have to say. Oh, thank you. I'll be back. <laughs> so for me, that was probably the journey to start thinking about carbon markets. And we had a unique set of circumstances at HSBC in that I was talking to a lot of clients, you know, they all wanted to know about carbon markets. They were looking at hiring teams in carbon markets but no one really knew how to access carbon markets. And I thought that was intriguing. And I started to put my hand up at the bank to do more investigations around it as an asset class. There was a lot of talk about voluntary carbon markets. You had COP coming up. So the, the narrative was starting to change and everyone went from saying, okay, my priority is all about me to more that my priority is all about our village. I don't think that was Australia. 
that was everywhere. And we saw that with the way the world responded. And maybe I'm a little bit biased because LinkedIn saw I started enjoying that stuff and it started saying, you must look at that stuff. That's a possibility. But I think it was bigger than that. And by noticing that everyone was looking at this, be it corporates, be it corporate treasurers, be it bank treasurers, but they didn't know how to access it. That was compelling for me to start looking into that as a story. To be clear, you're talking about that institutional level rather than a consumer level. Yeah, and I think that's an important distinction. So when I started looking into the Australian carbon credit unit market, which is a unique market for a few reasons, it's a pseudo compliance market, but it's also a voluntary market. And by that, if I differentiate between the European ETS scheme, where they drive up the baseline and they create a certificate out of thin air, they actually have a mechanism to drive the price of carbon up. Whereas in Australia, you have about four to six companies who have to operate in some sort of compliance regime. But if that's 12,000 in Europe, that's not really going to move the needle on price, four to six. And so when I started looking into, okay, who's actually dealing in these carbon markets? And thankfully, the clean energy regulator has a very transparent regime in that you can see who has active accounts, who's done what, how many trades. So it looked like there's about 55 active traders in early 2021. And I thought, wow, that's not a lot for a national carbon market. 55, I couldn't believe it, which someone for me, that's like a red rag to a bull. I'm going to go find out what's going on here. What did you think the number should have been? Well, I mean, if I just look at Europe, there's 12,000 in compliance. Yeah, okay, that gives me more context. The government had been the sole source of demand because it was so hard to physically own a carbon credit. So I went through the process of owning a carbon credit and found out that you need an account with the Australian National Registry of Emission Units, which is run by the Clean Energy Regulator, again, the government. And it's not an easy process, to be fair. There's a bit of a fit and proper check. There's police checks, which shows the importance of the asset class to the country, which I think is really important also to denote that there's other projects out there who are trying to game stop the carbon markets. And that's not what I'm trying to do. I want to create a sustainable platform for transparency. And through that transparency, I think by opening up demand channels, you can raise the price. So I found it really difficult to open that ANRU account. Took about four months to get my account open. And then I was confronted by the fact that I needed to actually buy any carbon. You need to be a wholesale investor, which is minimum 500,000 for your first trade. Now, I've done all right, but to have my first trade, it was pretty lumpy. (laughs) And again, that just struck me as another barrier. You know, we've probably taken out 99.6% of the population at that point. And when I considered that 90% of the demand had come from the government on a reverse auction basis, where they are legislated to get the lowest price for carbon, as opposed to every other ETS, which is bringing the floor price up, it just seemed like a really paradoxical mechanism. And I needed to figure out how to get it on the path of least resistance. And that path of least resistance for me was how do we open up the demand channels here? And I was looking at the rhetoric, you know, we watched a lot of TV during COVID, fascinating stuff, the same reel on Netflix, all that sort of stuff. And you'd turn free to air once in a while just to mix it up a bit. And you'd see that there was carbon-free phone plans. There was carbon-free this, there was carbon-free coals, there was carbon-free Woolworths. Everyone was on the carbon-free bandwagon. But no one was doing anything. They're all saying, we're going to do this by 2050. Frankly, 2050 is an arbitrary number, somewhere between here and a lot later. That's what 2050 really means. If you look at the science, 2028 is our point of 
where the autoimmune disease of the planet starts kicking in. It starts eating itself. And that's really, that's a bit dire. I want this to be a positive project which can make a difference today. I mean, you're right. 2050 seems like kicking the can down the road. You know, I've done a bit of work myself looking at what carbon reduction probably means for individual level. When you actually do the maths, it's pretty horrific. We're going to be back to living in low electricity situations. Anyway, there's a lot we all kind of individually need to do. And I think one of the things that's interesting, which you touch on, is that at a corporate level, there's a lot of rhetoric which is there. And I guess that rhetoric is then being followed up by looking at things like offsetting, which is where the carbon markets kind of come in. But actually, when I sort of had a look at the carbon markets, I found it quite confusing because at a pure consumer level, there seemed to be a lot going on. But there was a lot of differences between different markets. And, you know, there didn't seem to be an apples for apples comparison around all of this stuff. So... You know, I took it back to as a consumer going, well, actually, this is too confusing. I don't know. I had a look at the airline offsetting stuff as well, which was quite upsetting, actually. So we all pay a bit of money to offset our flights. And then you realise that, you know, there's pretty much nothing behind a lot of these offsetting schemes. And I think it's an important point to make around the quality of a carbon credit. So it's a lot like a car. So I'm going to put a lot of imagery in this because I've done a lot of work around it. It's like cars, plenty of different types of cars. You can go into a used car lot because what you're buying is a secondary credit. It's a used car. You go into a big lot, thousands of different types of cars, different models, different qualities. Now, if you go in with $100,000, you could probably take home 100 rubbish cars and you've got 100 rubbish cars in your driveway. That's all you've ended up with. And you might feel good about yourself because you've got 100 cars in your driveway. Most people probably think you're stupid. <laughs> now, at the end of the day, it's the guy who spent 100 grand on a vintage Merc that think he's probably made a good investment. And that plays true to carbon as well. Corporate treasurers, the ones who are staking their reputations around their balance sheet. Now, you have to remember that it's not just about carbon and nature. This is about balance sheets and disclosures at the end of a publicly listed company. These are important denotions that you're putting up. Now, if you go and buy a dubious quality carbon credit, because it was a bit cheaper, to save yourself a few bucks because you said you wanted to be carbon neutral. You have to also be up for the fact that the provenance of that project could be called into question at some point in the future. You have to be up for that. And it won't come onto the treasurer at the time. It'll come back to the year that you bought that carbon credit. And this is where the traceability of carbon credits is so important. I don't see beta carbon as in competition with any other project. We are all complementary because we all need to be driving this further. So I don't have a concept of competition in this space. I have a concept of quality. So when you partaking in any sort of asset class, you want to know the provenance of it. It's like when you do a foreign exchange deal, you're not going to do it with anyone just to save a buck because you've got to send them your US dollars to receive your Aussie. You want to make sure you receive your Aussie at the end of the day. And carbon's no different. So I just wanted to make a reference to that point of the difference between a compliance market, a high quality voluntary market, you know, gold standards, the Veras, these are all fairly good projects. But then if you start looking at old vintage that have sat there for $2 for the last seven years, but now they're $6, the only reason they're $6 is because someone's used to paying $2 and they don't want to pay 12 for the thing that used to cost four. Now, this is something which is just going to eat itself because you can kick that can down the road only so far before a company says, it's kind of moving in the wrong direction, guys. They told us that 
the supply would come on and meet it. But beyond the compliance markets, which are set to decrease supply, which is the closed loop, the voluntary markets, which are nature-based or technology-based, that will take two and a half to three and a half years to respond to any demand. You've seen what happened with the carbon markets over the last two years. They went from two euro to 80 euro. That's a 40x. Now, you can get exactly the same thing in the voluntary markets. Australian companies to get a climate active registration on their website, which is I'm carbon neutral now, which is a great thing. They only need to buy 20% in Australian projects. They can buy 80% offshore projects and they can buy any quality they like. Now, we've had a couple of instances where one of you know the four pillar banks has partaken in a Indian wind farm project, which we would have had good intentions. No doubt he had good intentions, but he ended up buying a wind farm, which was powering a menthol factory that had some modern slavery in there. Now, he didn't want that. He was a bank treasurer. That was not what he signed up for. He got told it would look really good on the surface. And that's where quality will always come back into play, especially when you're talking about a limited resource. There's only so many Ferrari Dinos out there. I want to own one. So do another 50 people. And there's only so many to buy. You don't have to be a genius to see what happens to the price in that situation. Turning to beta carbon and the concept itself, what you've done is found the past quality carbon. You know, you've done the work in terms of finding the quality, and then you've looked at turning that into an asset and an asset that anybody can potentially buy. Is that right? Yeah. So in Australia, a, a carbon credit is a financial product. You and I will know you can't sell a financial product at the checkout. Now, it's not a financial product in most other countries. But in a lot of other countries, crypto is a financial product. In Australia, crypto isn't a financial product. So we have this regulatory situation where I needed to deliver this to you or to mums and dads yeah, at the checkout. That's my end game is that instead of you buying an offset and donating, why don't you participate in the asset class? And while you own that token or that BCAU token, which is an ERC20 protocol token, no one can use that carbon credit to pollute because you own it. And while you own it, it's the same as an offset. Now, the moment you sell that to a corporate, I can't say that anymore. It won't do the same thing as an offset because an offset is destroyed forever. And it struck me that to open up this in a meaningful manner, you need to create a mechanism where you can sell it at the checkout. So our first pilot merchant is a company called MJ Bale. And they have about 70 stores. They're a men's outfitter, very high end for that mass market area. It's not bespoke, but it is high end. And he's already carbon neutral. You know, he's gone to great lengths to make sure his whole value chain is carbon neutral. He's actually in Italy now, making sure that his cotton is coming from a sustainable source. And he's exactly the type of client that Beta Carbon wants to create a community beyond. So when you go and buy your shirt, he may offer you a $10 discount, or he may say, would you like to have that in beta carbon tokens instead. Now, to open an account in beta carbon, if he gives you that token, all you need is an email address. So we've created a method of them to get into crypto without any friction at the checkout. Now they can't do anything with it. They can't sell it by it until they finish the full onboarding process, but we've created a mechanism for Fiat Rails to meet the crypto rails and become part of an everyday consumer journey. Here's the beauty of reward points. There's not many of them, but there is a few. The thing about a reward point is you probably don't know where most of them are. Oh, I don't. 
you know, I've got reward points here and there and everywhere. I don't touch any of them. They just sit there in perpetuity losing value. If we start thinking about the value of those reward points in actual money, they're sitting on balance sheets as a negative accrual. If we take all of those and the merchant gives that to the client and creates a community and a brand around that, they will come back to me and support me through purchases, but they may also support me around when I need to buy the carbon credits in the future. Maybe they'll look at various other methods of monetizing that carbon credit. Now they may sell it and go and buy a shirt. They may decide to get some sort of bonus from MJ Bale for those carbon credits, whatever it is. But I think it's really important to have a loop which is sustaining and that we're not taking the carbon credits away to try and break the market. That is not the point. What we're saying is there is a whole demand, a whole generation of demand, if you will, that wants to do something. They want to act. A lot of people hear ESG investing and glaze over. They do. They just don't know what it means. You hear green loan, you go, what's a green loan? I don't know. I think it's really important that we reframe that so that everyone can participate. I've got a 19-year-old son I co-founded this business with. It was his idea to put in crypto. (laughs) So if you take this to other countries, will they have to be open to crypto to adopt it? Yeah, look, there's different ways to skin the cat on this one. And in New Zealand, it's a fairly similar regulatory regime. But, you know, the price of a carbon credit here today in Australia is $55 Aussie. And the equivalent in New Zealand is about $72. So... Even there, there's a 40% gap between the same price of a tonne of carbon. And I think it's important to highlight those arbitrage opportunities. And decentralised finance allows us to do that because it doesn't care about borders. So when we think about what crypto is in each country, we have to be cognizant of the legal regime, the future, what that future looks like. Also, it's not just about crypto. This is a project around environment. So you can't just in isolation expect that the government would say, if we're doing good things and activating more projects, I think there's also an understanding that there's a carve out for certain types of crypto projects which are doing good. But you also have to be very careful about how you roll the projects out, which is what I discussed before about creating too much heat and light into a market that isn't used to having thousands of counterparties. You know, if there's only been 55 people and very happy in that little world because most of them are the producers who want to buy the carbon. I'm not really interested in what they have to pay. It needs to be the right price to incentivize carbon farming, period. I don't discriminate. That's the goal. I also want it to be a mechanism that can operate with all these other markets. So I like the idea of creating a narrative around Australia having cheap carbon. I think that's fantastic, especially when you consider Article 6 and fungibility of carbon credits across borders. This is going to be Next COP, it's what they're all going to talk about because they made such good headway at the last one. (laughs) They'll be talking about that. We haven't heard boo to a goose since that thing stopped either, have we? You know, we've got World Wetlands Day today, which is wonderful. But really, we haven't had any focus since COP. It's been pretty sanguine, I think, with elections and, you know, third, fourth wave pandemics. And we're all getting tired of that. We all want something to talk about that's new and different. And I think this kind of market lays itself to that kind of narrative and It's an education process, which you spoke about at the very start, saying it's just too confusing. I'm interested, I guess, from the tech side of things, what platform are you basing your tokens on? So at the moment, we're on ERC-20, and we did that for a few reasons. Like, we're aware that from a proof-of-work perspective, it's kind of not that efficient, but we also have our own exchange, which will be running on a layer two solution. So, you know, that is less of a concern for me at this point. 
I'd love to make sure that the move to the proof of stake becomes a reality and we are watching that closely. But we have many other projects actually talking to us at the moment around hashgraph technology. There's some really efficient digital ledgers out there which are really efficient. But for me, I was also cognizant that I want to get listed on external exchanges. ERC-20 is a protocol. They're very quick to list. And also it runs on a side chain. So when that happens, most of the electricity doesn't occur until it goes back on chain at some point. And by and large, the narrative around that has been really effective in scare tactics, but the narrative around actually explaining layer two solutions has been really poor. And I think that's part of our job as well. Awesome. Going back to going more international, yeah. for example, if you came to the UK, you'll have to forgive me, I'm not sure where the UK sits in terms of the ETS market in Europe and things. I think the UK has actually got its own market, which is kind of emerging. But are you going to then do the work in terms of making sure that as a consumer, I just don't even need to worry about all of that side of things? Well, the UK is an interesting one. To start with, let's pat the UK people on the back for being quite efficient to start with. The average Aussie uses 17 tonnes a year. I think the average person in the UK is somewhere between four to five and a half tonnes. So you're all getting around in your tiny cars and we're really proud of you. I think that's good work. (laughs) (laughs) But there is a problem here. And part of that problem is in the UK, historically, if you go and look up a carbon credit on the FSA website, you'll see something about carbon credit scams. That's what will come up on the internet. Now, that's what you guys are left with. So there's probably even more work to do in the UK than there is here because we had nothing, whereas there was probably negative connotations with carbon that have sat there from a legacy perspective. Now, that's why it's so important to your point around saying, can we just be sure around what the hell you're doing here? I think that's really what you get from us. If we talk about the people that are building this project up, myself, I've been a custodian at HSBC. We ran 1.6 trillion of assets under custody in Australia. You know, that's a T, that's a big number. We know how to do this correctly. If you consider that the deputy chair of ASIC is on our capital stack and advises us, he has global relationships with regulators. So when we go and step into a new jurisdiction, he makes a warm introduction. We don't come in from the side and try and say, here we are. We're big heat and light. We don't. We come in and we say, how can we make this work so we can all win? We want this to be a win-win project. I'm not in a rush. You know, I've had my time in the sun. This is about creating mechanisms that get us there quicker. And so there are other complications in the UK around evolving stable token laws and legislation around security, about being licensed, about where you operate from. There are avenues. There's always an avenue if you're willing to explore it. What I would say is I would rather slow down a launch and be fit for purpose for a regime that's 12 months away than rush in in the next three months. That's an important thing to differentiate me to other people. Now, that's purely for consumers who are sitting in the UK and want a centralised regime. They don't want to even think about a decentralised MetaMask wallet. They don't want to look at Uniswap. They don't want to go to a bigger exchange that's running out of Malta. They've got no interest. That's what they need. That's what they require. Nothing could really stop me from offering one of my high quality voluntary credits to someone in the UK, but I wouldn't be marketing it to them. They would be coming and finding it on a reverse inquiry basis. And they will. The people who start to wake up to this market, there are other projects out there. They're interesting for various reasons. And if I can for a minute, I'd love to talk about them from what people in the UK can do to activate this asset class now in various different ways. And there's a project called Moss.Earth, been around for a couple of years, 
fairly sanguine for a while. They were doing a lot of work around their governance and other pieces. I think it's a pretty decent project. They're doing South American red credits and that's not bad, but they do trade at a great premium to the underlying carbon value. It's gone up to three to four X recently when they got listed on one of the larger global exchanges. That shows you what opening a market up with limited supply does. Climadao was another one. A lot of heat and light. They came in and they took all these carbon credits off chain. They did a big IPO, raised a whole lot of money, bought the carbon credits for 20 million bucks and issued it a billion. Now that's 50X of the embedded carbon value. And I reckon the bulk was hype around Dow at the time. Guess what? It's down 95%. And in the same time, beta carbon's up 80%. So you've got the same asset class. One's done that, one's done that. So I think when you start considering what a project should look like, when times are bad, so we've had you know the biggest equity falls in a long time. Tech stocks have been smashed. Not even Kathy Wood can make a return these days. You've got a situation where global equity markets are off, Aussies off, the usual risk off trades are all off, not beta carbon. It's got limited supply. There's no difference to us operating in the Australian carbon credit market. It's the same in the UK. If once we do land there, either gone through the full licensing or we've found a route to market that allows us to operate on a fully legal basis, it should be no difference when we're operating in the UK ETS. We want individuals to be given back the choice how quickly they want to return this planet back to balance. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. It's just such a fascinating topic. I mean, you're right. After COP, everything seems to have quietened down a bit, but the conversation is just going to carry on and on. This week alone, I was reading about Roman Abramovich, who I think his carbon footprint is (laughs) the same as a third of the population of Rwanda all put together. So (laughs) perhaps have a chat with him. You know, he needs to be doing something, to be honest with you. But it's definitely, definitely absolutely the right thing to be looking at and doing. And I really appreciate you spending time to explain it. So thank you so much for joining us. It's been my pleasure, Dave. And look, I think as we build out and as we get closer to launching in other countries, you know, I'd love to come back on and tell you about our progress and what it's going to look like in the UK in the not distant future. Very interesting, both from the tech perspective, but also the market that you're addressing. Ram and I will come and visit you in Sydney and buy (laughs) beta carbon instead of offsetting. How about that? Excellent, excellent. But you know, (laughs) we've got some other secrets up our sleeve that you can use in the future. I won't tell them for this episode, but maybe in the next one. So fabulous. Thank you. There's plenty in the space to look at if you've got an open mind. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thank you for tuning in to Dave and Dan Demystify. We hope you join us next time and check back in the weeks ahead as we build our podcast vault on SoundCloud. Be sure to connect with Dave Wallace and Darmish Mystery on LinkedIn. And until next time, ciao and have a marvelous week. The Dave and Darm Demystify Show is a production of NMD Plus, London, Chicago and Austin, Texas.